Well, let me add my good morning, everybody. My name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor here. It's great to be with you today. If you're new with us, a special welcome to you. Or if you're visiting with us because you have somebody in your family being baptized, a very warm welcome to you as well. Uh, We would ask if you um, would would indulge us to look at that compass uh, that you received when you came in, not only for information on the church, but also there's a big QR code on the back of that, which is a great way to make connection with us so we can make connection with you. Reach out to you this upcoming week, give you a call and see how we might serve you and serve your family. Uh, You can do that just by grabbing your smartphone and clicking on that QR code and going forward from there. If you're new here, you're stepping into the middle of a series in the book of Philippians. I wanna ask everybody to grab a Bible and open to the book of Philippians right now. Uh, You can find it right there on page 981 of the Pew Bible in front of you or grab your copy of God's Word. The words also be on the screen. And as you turn, uh, we recognize that there is a universal human desire to know the divine. Throughout every culture and every season of history, you see it. Through contemporary expressions, you see the desire to access the divine in many ways. And this desire often becomes more acute as someone is nearing their death. T.F. Torrance was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, but prior to that, he served as a chaplain during World War II. And on the battlefield in Italy, he attended to a dying 19-year-old soldier And the dying man asked him this question. Padre, is God really like Jesus? For Torrance, it was this question that captured the deepest cry of the human heart. Is the God that we will meet on the other side of death the same God that came to earth as a lowly babe. Torrance assured the dying man with these words. He said, God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. To know Jesus is to know God. And in Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul is proclaiming the infinite value of knowing Jesus. This is more valuable, he says, than any of his achievements in life. To know Jesus is more valuable, he says, than his rich, rich heritage. And with passion dripping off of his words, he compels you and he compels me to know him deeper and deeper as well. Not to have vague notions about who Jesus is. Not to go through life simply thinking that keeping him at a distance is enough. Not to know things about Jesus but to know him, to experience him, to really, really know him. And this morning, we are going to pause just on two verses that talk about 
knowing Christ in a particular way. Sometimes it's worth it to take really large chunks of scripture and see the flow of thought, and other times we will slow way down and just think together about the implications of a few words. And that's what we're going to do in the next handful of minutes together. But as we do, let's read the surrounding verses as well. So in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to focus on verses 10 and 11, but we'll start reading at verse 7. So follow with me, Philippians 3, verse 7. It says this. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, by gain he's talking about his great list of accomplishments. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The desire to know Christ. It's somewhat striking that Paul is still expressing the desire that he wants to know Christ because it's been many years, maybe even 30 since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was converted on that day as he met him and he studied Jesus. He's followed him faithfully. He's been the emissary of the gospel throughout the known world. He's been empowered by the Spirit to perform miracles. He's planted churches in his name. He's withstood suffering. And he now is even writing letters to the churches empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, which would become much of the New Testament. And yet he still says, I want to know Jesus. You would think that he knows him already. He's been spending his life on Jesus. But this knowledge of him in increasing measure is so valuable. He doesn't want to just know about him. But he wants to really know him the depths of his character, the experiential nature of being in relationship with the living son of God. Paul says, I count everything, everything I have done, all the successes, all the checklist, everything is a loss compared to the worth of knowing him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. I do know him, but there is an ambition to know him even more. I wonder if you have that ambition. I'm sure you can relate to this in other spheres of your life, things that you know or people that you know. There may be an activity in your life 
a hobby perhaps that becomes an addiction, something that you've learned in the past but you have an insatiable desire to know more, to keep learning, a hobby like fly fishing, which is one of my hobbies. I grew up in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, which means I grew up with a fishing pole in my hand because one of those lakes was right in my backyard. I know how to fish. Fished in lakes, I've fished in oceans, I've fished in rivers. But a couple years ago, I learned how to fly fish for the very first time. And even though I know how to fish and I'm learning how to fly fish, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Because fly fishing's wonderfully complicated, which is what makes it so interesting. The types of flies, dry flies or wet flies or eggs or nymphs, they all correspond to something that's happening in a natural environment around you in a river or a stream or a lake, an environment that's ever-changing depend upon the time of year and the geographical location and the speed and the depth of the water and the species of trout in which you are fishing for and the execution of the cast and the list goes on and on and on. I know how to fish and I kind of know how to fly fish and I really, really want to know how to fly fish. Some of you in this room are married. Do you remember the process of getting to know your spouse? You met them. You spent time with them. You fell in love with them. You got to know them. You got to know them so well that you wanted to get married to them and spend the rest of your life with them. And then you got married. And you realized that you only kind of knew them. And all the little finicky things that makes them unique that you only caught glimpses of from a distance or maybe conveniently ignored while you were dating. But now you spend the rest of your life, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years getting to know them again and again and again and better and better and better. You see, there is an ever-expanding relational knowledge that comes from the depth of relationship through frequency and time. Frequency and time. And nothing will replace those things. And so there is this desire that Paul has for his relationship with Jesus through frequency and time because Jesus is infinitely interesting because the depths of the Savior knows no end. Because for you to understand all of the implications of his work in your life, it's not something that can be grasped in a day, a week, a month, or even years. It takes a lifetime to try to understand these things. He is of infinite worth and value and joy. Oh, that you may know him. I want to know him more than I know him today. To really, really know him. And I hope you do too. And Paul indicates that there are two specific ways that we can know him even better. He says the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings. So 
let's consider both. Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection. On the brisk Sunday morning, the body of Jesus lay on the stone-cold bed of a dark cave which served as his tomb. Friday was the darkest day in human history. The Son of God had been falsely accused, tried, terribly beaten, and mercilessly hung on a cross to die. But he had submitted himself to all of these things willingly. And the worst part of his trial, private, beating, private, execution, public, was not the torture or the pain. The worst part was not the public scorn. The worst part was the fact that God, the Father, was bearing down his wrath of all of the sins of the world and their worthy punishment on his Son, which now bore those sins. And then he died. And Saturday was quiet. And Sunday morning came in the darkness of the cave and something miraculous happened. The crucified Son of God rose from the dead. Resurrection. Resurrection power applied to him. And Paul indicates that we can know Jesus more by knowing that type of resurrection power. And so the question becomes, well, how can we know it? But we know it in at least three ways, probably even more. The first way that we can know resurrection power is through conversion. Because the New Testament describes your conversion, the moment in which you surrender yourself to Jesus and put your faith in him to forgive you of your sins and say, I want you to be the king of my life instead of me being the king of my life. That moment of conversion in which God gives you grace is a life-giving resurrection. Conversion to Christianity is not just a change of mind. I used to think one way about things and now I think another way about things. It is a death to life resurrection. The Bible is replete with these types of descriptions. Here's just a couple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Death to life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he describes the same thing a different way. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Death to life, darkness to light. And then he says in Ephesians 1, for us to know what is the immeasurable greatness 
of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. And so God uses this power, supernatural resurrection power, to raise Jesus from the dead. And Paul prays that you would know the immeasurable greatness of that same power when you believe. That's the power of the resurrection. Spiritually dead people becoming alive when they know Jesus. In the late 1920s, Len Sullivan's grandparents married and they moved into grandpa's old family home. And it was a clapboard house with a hallway down the middle. But in the 1930s, they decided to tear the old house down and to build another to be the home that they would live in for the rest of their lives. But much to my grandmother's dismay, Len says, many of the materials of the old house were reused in the new house and not the ones that you'd want. (laughs) They used old facings and doors and many other pieces of finishing lumber. And so everywhere my grandmother looked, she saw that old house, old doors that wouldn't close properly, crown molding that was split and riddled with nail holes, unfinished window trimming. And this was the source of her grief. She thought she was going to have a new life, but instead she was just living a different version of the old one. (laughs) Friends, when God applies resurrection power to you and to me, we don't have just a renewed version of the old life. The old way of living is not only dismantled, but it's also discarded. And a new life is what follows. That's the power of the resurrection. Spiritually dead people becoming alive. That's the picture that we're going to see later today in baptism. Spiritually dead people who've become alive. And this is why... When you hear of people's conversions, you hear them say things like, they feel release from the weight of sin when they became a Christian. That you experience a new freedom that you didn't feel before. That you experience a deep and abiding joy that you didn't know you could have. You feel like you have been known in a way you've never been known before because you realize that God knows you. You experience for the very first time a certain hope for your future where uncertainty only existed in the past. That's all resurrection power applied to your soul. And you can know that by putting your faith in Christ. You know, there's a second way that we experience resurrection power and it's very much related to the first We know the power of the resurrection through the conversion of others. The life-giving power of God that we receive is the same power that's applied to others when they hear the gospel, respond in faith, surrender to God, and receive his grace. And when you are the one who is communicating the gospel to them in that moment with that person, and 
they put their faith in Christ, then you get to witness the resurrection of power, the resurrection power of God being poured over somebody's life and applied directly to their soul right in front of you. And that's pretty amazing. I wish I could remember all of the people that I've seen put their faith in Christ. I can't. But I never forget the feeling of watching the supernatural work of God being applied to the soul of someone right in front of me. And that's not just a privilege that pastors get. (laughs) In fact, the Christian life is not bring people to church so that the pastor can see that work applied to their life. The Christian life is one in which each and every one of you have the opportunity to see resurrection power not only applied to yourself, but other people as you share the gospel with them. Because you know, once you've experienced God, oh my goodness, do you know. You know that this is the greatest possible thing you can have. That Jesus is of infinite worth and value. More than your comfort or your happiness or your material well-being. You know that those people you love need him more than anything else. They need resurrection power. And you can be the one to share it with them. You know, the third way that we experience the power of the resurrection is something that is yet to come. And that is through the physical resurrection of our bodies when Jesus returns. Verse 11, Paul indicates that he is certain that this power will be applied to all who believe in Jesus again. It will be applied to you. It will be applied to me. In fact, he has already said he'd rather be with Christ right now. So would I. But he will remain. and So will we. But we are confident that when Jesus returns, We will see him afresh and we will know him even more uniquely than we do now because this resurrection power is going to be applied to your body as you're risen from the dead. Oh, friends, that you may know Christ, that you may know him more than you know him today, not know about him, not sort of know him, that you would really know him and that you would know him through this type of resurrection power. The second way that we know him more, Paul says, is by sharing in his suffering. Let me read it again just to remind you. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That seems to me to be an odd desire to be expressed. To share in suffering. 
especially since in so many ways Jesus came and suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer eternally in hell for our sins. So why would Paul say, I want to know this type of suffering and follow him in it? The answer is because the reality of suffering is the lot of every Christian to one degree or another. You will suffer. Not all of you the same way. But suffering is one of the chief mechanisms that God uses to shape and transform your character. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's not take up your religious symbol and follow me. (laughs) That's take up the road of suffering. Paul says in Acts 14, 22, he was preaching to the churches of Asia. And it says that the content of his preaching was to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 17, Paul tells the Christians that suffering is what will come for them before they will receive glorified bodies. It says, and if children, children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so the truth of the matter is that it is not just something we must endure, but it is actually a privilege for us to suffer for and with Christ. It's a gift. And in so many ways, an honor that God would allow you to suffer for and with his son. And when you walk the path that Christ walked and you experience the grace of God applied to your life, in the midst of that suffering, you get to know him in a very unique way as your character is formed. Now, this reality is not just a spiritual one. So for our purposes today, it's primarily a spiritual one. But this reality is seen in common human experience all the time. By far, the vast majority of most successful people in the world are people who have had to overcome difficulty and trial and even suffering. Statistically, it's not even close. David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times. Ten years ago, he wrote an article in which he says, we live in a culture awash in the talk about happiness. And in one three-month period last year, more than 1,000 books about happiness were released on Amazon in this subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness but they feel formed through suffering. Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, during one of the most trying times in the recent history of the island, met scorn and ridicule at every turn as people objected. And Churchill 
once quipped in the midst of adversity, kites rise highest against the wind, not with it. Growth and formation of character is enacted through difficulty, turmoil, and suffering. And the same is true in the Christian life and uniquely for Christians as we walk the path that Jesus walked, which causes the reformer John Calvin in the 1500s in Geneva, Switzerland to write, you must submit to supreme suffering in order to discover the completion of joy. We are shaped, molded, formed, refined through suffering. That's why it's a privilege. That's why God allows you to become more like Christ and to know him uniquely as you suffer. It elevates your dependence upon the Father. It points to the significance of the work of the Son. Endurance and faithfulness in the midst of suffering is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that last point is really important to remember. The privilege doesn't come with an expectation that you will be able to handle suffering based on your own strength. It comes after you experience resurrection power. Not before. And as such, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit enables the Christian to share in the sufferings of Christ faithfully and not to stumble and to enjoy intimacy with him all the more deeper and deeper and deeper as they get to know their Savior on a whole nother level. And the implications are wonderful. There are many. There's a unique privilege of suffering. Generally in this life we're formed by suffering, specifically as Christians in the sufferings of Christ. It means that experiencing the power of the resurrection through your conversion motivates you to suffer faithfully, not to suffer unfaithfully. You know, God has infinite power. And if he allows this to happen in your life, then you can be faithful in it. And without that experience, without the resurrection power, no one would want to have the sufferings of Christ. I know I wouldn't. Neither would you. But with it, we can endure The truth gives us courage in evangelism and sharing the gospel because when we share the gospel boldly, if we're ridiculed for it, there's still benefit. (laughs) You get great benefit of seeing resurrection power applied to the soul of someone who you share the gospel with. But if they reject you and reject the message and even ridicule you and scorn you, there's still benefit. What's the benefit? I'm suffering with Christ. As he was rejected, so am I, and I get to know him better in it. And there's a mindset that comes with this. A mindset we need to remind ourselves of. That there's a privilege of being considered worthy to suffer in such a way. If God's allowing it to happen, He knows you can handle it by his strength. And we need to remind ourselves of that because in the moment we don't always feel it, do we? We need to remind ourselves of it. That's what the apostles did. Acts chapter five, 
Peter and John are sharing the good news about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and the council of Jerusalem of, of the leaders of the temple bring, him, bring them in. They inquire of them and as a result, they beat them with rods and send them away saying, don't talk about this anymore. And you know what their response was? It says in Acts 5.41, they went away and walked home licking their wounds, wonder what they should do next. Not at all. It says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Knowing Christ. It finally comes uniquely, as verse 11 indicates, as we're conformed to his death, as we enjoy the resurrection of our bodies. Without death, resurrection doesn't happen. Paul doesn't know if he will live to see the return of Jesus or if he will die first and his body will be resurrected somewhere down the road. But his point throughout the whole book of Philippians, his point in the passage today, earlier in the book, his point in chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, was not just about salvation for you or for him. And here it's not just about eternal life that is to come. He shows that the goal is not just these things, but that the prize for you and the prize for me is Christ. He's the prize. Do you want to know him? Do you want to really feel that he is the prize? I do. Oh, I hope you do too. To really truly know him. Many of you know that I, I like Renaissance art and the stories behind Renaissance art, not only because it's beautiful, but because so many of the stories are about the Lord and so many of the paintings are about the Lord. And in 2008, one of the greatest masterpieces of the Renaissance, of the Italian Renaissance, was restored to its original splendor and it was returned to its home in Florence, Italy. It's called the Madonna del Cardellino and it was painted by Raphael in 1505 for the wedding of a friend, a wealthy Florence merchant. And it portrays Jesus Christ's mother, Mary, with two young children playing with a bird. The children symbolized are John the Baptist and his young cousin Jesus. And the goldfinch, which is playing and feeding among thorns, is interpreted as representing Christ's future sufferings. But something happened to the painting. It was painted in 1505. Forty years later, there was an earthquake, and in the house in which it was kept, the painting was shattered into 17 different pieces. The wood was all smashed into bits. And so another artist took long iron nails and tried to patch 
the pieces together and then tried to paint over them to conceal the breaks and to make it look whole again. But over the years, there were so many layers of paint that were added and so much dust and grime over the painting that the original colors, the original art, was completely obscured. And so the science of contemporary restoration is amazing. A project took place to fix the shattered areas and remove the layers of paint one by one and the dirt and the grime to get the colors back. And it was a team effort. It took 50 people 10 years of working on this one painting. But the result is stunning. The cracks are gone. The centuries of brown film and grime are gone. The dulling veneers and patches have been stripped away and the finished product glows with all of the depth of color, reds and blues and golds of the original work of art. Given how badly it was damaged, the restoration of Raphael's painting is arguably even more amazing than the painting itself. And the original, as splendid as it was, is now seen as a miracle of restoration that compounds the beauty. The spiritual parallels are profound. They speak to a far greater masterpiece of restoration, the one the Lord wants to do in your life and in mine. Tragically, the beautiful design of God that he created in all of us is marred by sin, by layers of grime and dirt that's been collected. Maybe you felt them. Maybe you've sensed them in your life. You thought you could paint over the damage, but it didn't work. And the patches, the veneers that you applied only made things worse. And the cracks are now showing. Maybe you've experienced earthquakes that have shattered you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has the power to make all things new. And you can know him. You can really know the living son of God and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. I want to know him more. That's my prayer for me. I hope you want to know him more to really know him. I wonder if that would be your prayer for you. And as we pray now and look at a picture of resurrection, we ask God to continue to do this work in our lives. So please pray with me. Lord God, we want to know Christ. We confess our moments or seasons of apathy toward knowing him. We confess our lethargy in pursuing him. We confess even that we might not want to know him in sharing in his sufferings. 
But today it is my prayer for us that we would see him even more clearly, that we would know him more intimately, that the depth of the Savior in an experiential experiential relationship with each one would compel us more and more to follow him faithfully. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.